0: You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Your hand's in First Kings chapter 11. It's best if I wade you into the water of what this chapter is about, all right? I want to do that by asking you to remember an illustration from several months ago. We were in 2 Samuel, do do you recall? And it was just after David's sin. And we were describing the effects of David's sin and how it was like an undertow that the sin broke upon the rocks of that shore and then it pulled back out to sea lots of things that were really not involved with the sin. And We described consequences in David's life after his sin as the undertow of sin. Do you remember that at all? You can kind of nod like this. I, I remember that. Okay, great. Well, that's one illustration of David's consequence. As I was thinking through Solomon's downfall, I had another picture come to mind that I want to kind of paint before you with this picture, and that is one of erosion. And what erosion pictures for us is really Solomon's compromise. That it was slow, almost invisible, and yet it was sure and steady. As he made and gave way to small sins, quote unquote, little compromises, the shoreline of his spiritual life was gradually eaten away until at the end his kingdom had nothing to stand on and God tore it away from him in judgment. I want you not kind to keep this picture in mind as we look at the downfall of Solomon in 1 Kings 11, okay? The word erosion is the word that's going to best describe it and it was caused and brought about by small compromises over a long period of time. In fact, here's what we're going to see in 1 Kings 11. That's the chapter we'll kind of dig into. Here's kind of where we're going to end up. I'll just go ahead and kind of tell you up front where we're headed so you can kind of see the end destination. We're going to see that cutting spiritual corners, or the word for that is called compromise. Can you say it with me? Compromise. That it ends in disastrous consequences. And only God's wisdom can help us steer clear of its subtle and erosive trap. And oh, how we wish Solomon would have stayed with the wisdom that God gave him in that beautiful and, and, and most blessed way when he anointed him and gave him so many blessings. If we would have stayed with God's wisdom, he would have avoided this uh, incremental erosion of his life and his kingdom. But instead... He paid little attention to what was happening, and he just kept sinning in, in small ways on the surface, but it had a great toll underneath the surface. Let's look into that, can we? First Kings chapter 11. I'm going to walk you through this chapter somewhat briefly with three points, and then I want to kind of end with some illustrations along the way. And uh, we'll just kind of end on a very encouraging note, but I want to warn you that it could seem somber on the journey. We're, we're going to end up in a good place, okay? but this is a this is a s- sobering, stark chapter. It begins with this incredible contrast in verse one. Now King Solomon loved many, circle the word many, would you? Many foreign women are highlighted in your electronic copy, however you're marking your Bible, because this is an interesting word the author brings to our attention. It contrasts with chapter 3, verse 1, in which we find this phrase. Here's chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Kings Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's a singular phrase about one, what they consider to be simple or small act, right? It's just one foreign marriage alliance or treaty. What's the big deal? But now you fast forward seven, eight chapters, what is probably 20 plus years in Solomon's reign. And look what the word now is. Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So there's his first one, and he's added many. How many? Well, from the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. How many, Todd? Is there a number for the word many in eleven one? Yes, a thousand. 700 wives, 300 concubines, and they turned away his heart. It's the second time you see the phrase turned away, don't you? You're going to see it four times in these first few verses. And the word does not mean a sudden crash or break. It doesn't mean that I take a vase or a a pipe and I cut it or I drop it and break it. It means that you slowly bend it away from its original shape to take the shape of something else. It's a slow process. It means to kind of turn something over a period of time. It's a beautiful word here in that sense, in a literary sense, of what happened to Solomon. He clung to them in love. That means to cleave. He attached himself to them. And what did they do? They bent his heart over time. They turned away his heart. And when did he realize this? When did this really all kind of come to the surface? I think verse 4 tells us, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after gods, other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Now you know this happened even at the beginning of his reign. He made an alliance with the Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he took uh, that Pharaoh's daughter as his wife. And so it was even in the beginning elements. But I think when it says they turned away his heart when he was old. Is when it all became the surface. And he realized, wow, what's happened to me? He's got a thousand, uh, 700 wives. What is it? 300 Yeah, concubines, 700 wives, 1,000 total. And he looks and he realizes, wow, man, they have turned my heart away from worshiping only God and we're in the middle of an idolatrous nation. What a realization. Here's how disastrous it was in Israel that day. It says that he went after, this is verse 5, he went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Those were both very uh, sexually licentious gods and goddesses. Faults, of course, but they would demand, quote-unquote, sexual orgies and practices done on high places and around altars. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord by doing this. He did not, verse 6 say he did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And he built a high place for Chemosh the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. Molech specifically required child sacrifice. So can you imagine in a land where God said, you shall not worship any other gods, and you're not to marry other nationalities because they'll lead you away from worshiping only God, the one true God. Solomon did this and in this nation they're actually offering children a sacrifice. They're involved in fornication and adultery in these high places. It is a disastrously wicked environment among the very people God called out and said, worship me only. How did we get there? Solomon got there And forgive me for how I say this to you. One wife at a time. I could even expand it. He got there one horse at a time. You see, the law didn't just ask kings not to collect multiple wives. The law in Deuteronomy 17 said you're not to collect horses and you're not to collect gold and silver. And what did Solomon do? He did all three. So how did Solomon end up reigning over a nation that was incredibly removed from what God intended. One horse at a time, one concubine at a time, one treaty at a time, one talent at a time. Small compromises all along the way led to the eventual downfall of Solomon and the ultimate division of Israel. It says here that he did this, verse 8, for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So he's accommodating these foreign wives, the nations where they come from. Well, verse 9 tells us the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. So he knew full well what God required but little by little his heart was turned away. He did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, watch this now, since this has been your practice, circle the word practice. See, that's how he went from one in chapter 3 verse 1 to many in chapter 11 verse 1. He practiced these sins little by little over a period of time. Erosion, compromise. God here calls him out and says, Solomon, this is your practice. You've not kept my covenant and my statutes I've commanded you. So I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So even in this judgment, do you see God's steadfast Faithful love so evident? I do. And God was staying faithful to himself and his promises even when the people around him, his leaders were unfaithful. What you find beginning in 14, I won't read the rest of the chapter to you. What you find in 14 is the way God fulfills what he promised in verses 11 and 12 and 13. He promises Solomon because you have practiced idolatry. For years, I'm going to tear the kingdom away. How does he do that? Through three enemies. Verse 14 mentions the first one, Hadad. He's an external enemy, which means he was not an Israelite. You can read his story between 14 and about 22. The second external enemy was reason. Verse 23, he was also an external enemy, not an Israelite. You can read about him through about verse 27, I think it is. Excuse me, about verse 25, And then the internal enemy, Jeroboam, who was an Israelite, begin reading about his um, uh, adversarial actions, beginning in verse 26 through probably about verse 40. All three of these are men that, now watch this church, God raised up in judgment against Solomon to actually fulfill what God brought to Solomon in judgment, that he would tear the kingdom away. I've often wondered what would have happened as Solomon watched God raising up these enemies against him, what would have happened if Solomon would have seen God's hand working, watch this, against him in that sense, and he would have repented? I don't know. The text doesn't say, all right? But I can surmise that perhaps God would have relented. He did at Nineveh, didn't he? Remember Nineveh? He said, Jonah, you go preach 40 days. Judgment's coming. And yet when Nineveh repented, God showed mercy, didn't he? So I don't know that would have happened. But I just think it's interesting that three instruments God uses to get Solomon's attention and instead of repenting, confessing, and then obeying what God had commanded him to do. What does he do? Verse 40. Let's pick it up there. He instead sought to kill Jeroboam. So I think he felt like his biggest threat was the internal one. Maybe there was, he was managing the external threats well. We know there was peace in his 40 years of reigning, but he saw this internal threat. And instead of seeing, wow, man, God is getting my attention. I've violated the covenant. I've broken God's law. He instead tries to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt. Solomon does finish his reign, verses 41 through 43. Describe that and how he's buried and sleeps with his father's. And then Rehoboam takes his place and we'll continue this next week in the verse of Rehoboam's actions and how the division occurs and how God fulfills his promise of judgment. He does tear the kingdom apart after Solomon's death. What led us to that terrible, disastrous consequence? It's the small compromises between chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 11 verse 1 in which Solomon little by little, went from one, watch this church, this is almost astounding, went from one foreign wife to keep that Pharaoh and Egypt happy to a thousand. I mean, can you picture this in your mind? Let's just kind of put this in our vernacular. Maybe Solomon says in 3-1, like, oh yeah, you know you're right, it's, it's not that big a deal, it's just one. I mean, we've said that before about our sin, haven't you? You have, you cannot, I've said that, It's just one sin. It's just one lie. It's just one item. It's just one date. It's just one time. But then maybe a few years later, it's, well, okay, I'll add one more. I mean, it's just two, right? We're still single digits. Okay, five. I've got five now. I'm still in the single digits. I'm closest to zero as I am to ten, but... Suddenly it's 10, like, okay, double digits, we'll go with 10, but that's not that many, I can handle it. Have you seen my gold? Have you seen my palaces? Have you seen my power? But suddenly 10 gets to 50, and then 50 to 100, and then 100 to 500, and somewhere he ends up with 1,000. I can't hardly fathom how someone doesn't catch that digression. Can you? Like, it seems to some you, you're like, hey, I've gone from 1 to 1,000, something's wrong here. But that's how compromise works. That's how erosion works. You don't see it happening. You think, it's, it's, you think everything's fine. It's almost invisible until it's too late. This is Solomon's downfall. It's the little compromises over a long period of time that gradually eroded his spiritual life and fervency and brought about God's judgment. Can I ask you to notice just three things by way of outline that might help us understand the chapter? Let me do this briefly with you. First of all, I think the chapter helps us understand the process of erosion. And in two words, it's small compromises. I've kind of talked about this already, so I won't belabor this point. I just want to make sure you understand that this chapter really isn't the complete chronology of Solomon's demise you find that beginning in chapter 3 verse 1 and over 20, 30, maybe 35 years these little compromises pertaining to what God said he should not do but he went ahead and did them anyway over a period of time they built up and they built up and they just kept eating away at the shoreline of his kingdom of his life it's small compromises all along the way in, in some sense, I think Solomon must have had what I call exception thinking. That's when someone thinks to themselves, oh, that's true, but it won't be true for me. Ever had that thought? Oh, yes, I know God said that, but my case is different. Oh, I realize that's what the Bible says, but, but I see it differently. And I think when there's exception thinking, it's the final stage Before the noose of pride goes around their neck. I would remind you that Solomon himself wrote this. Pride goes before what? A fall. And it's pride that says, you know what? I know that's true, but it won't be true for me. I know I really shouldn't date that unbeliever. I know I shouldn't really chase after this money. I know I shouldn't really this or that or whatever God says in his word. But I think I'll be the exception. And we never say it quite that boldly, do we? we never say it that bluntly, but in our heads we're thinking, it won't happen to me. When you start thinking that, you've got your neck in the noose of compromise. And the next place for you is the tightening of that noose over a long period of time. If you're thinking that right now, in fact, like, well, Todd, I guess you're right, but not true for me. You're actually the one I'm talking about, okay? Okay? Exception thinking is one of the signs that we actually are are giving way to compromise. You see, Solomon, I think he felt like his lusts for what we might call money, sex, and power, his desire for more of these things, I think he must have thought in some ways, well, I'm the king, it won't really affect me. But you see, what James writes in chapter 1, verses 14 and 50 is true for all people. Here's what James writes about our desires, our lust, which Solomon had to deal with. He had his own uh, uncontrolled appetites that came back to, to haunt him. Here's what James writes. He says that each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Solomon had these. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Here's the erosive process that sin takes. It starts with a desire that's uncontrolled, a desire that says, well, that's probably not that bad. That won't be that hurtful. Just one time. And then it breeds sin. And then sin takes its toll over time and brings death. So I just want to encourage you, church. I know this is a somber part of the message. But watch out for the small areas well, you're tempted to say, Oh, that won't happen to me. That's the first sign that it probably will happen to you. Instead of exception thinking, we should embrace acceptance thinking. In fact, I think this is the battle that goes on among all of us. Instead of saying, Well, it won't happen to me, we should realize that all of us are underneath the authority of God's word. What God says. Is right, period. It doesn't matter what your last name or your first name is, where you live, your address, your job. God's Word is an authority over all of us. And so we accept God's Word as true, regardless of who we are. That's acceptance thinking. And I think as we embrace acceptance thinking, God, you're right, I'm not, then we steer clear of compromise and erosion. If you're still thinking, well, Todd, I can see what you mean. I can see the verses. I I think that's true, but you don't know my situation. If you're still kind of arguing as the exception, can I just remind you lastly on this point that if the first man to ever live fell to sin, Adam, if the strongest man to ever live fell to sin, Samson, If one of the godliest men who had a heart like God's fell to sin, David, and if the wisest man to ever live, Solomon, fell to sin, if the first man to ever live, the strongest man to ever live, one of the more spiritual men to ever live, and the wisest man to ever live, if they fell to sin because they thought they were an exception, guess what? You could too. (laughs) And so could I. Here's the point. There are no exceptions when it comes to compromise. And so I think the first stark reality is to realize that we have to all wrestle with our hearts here. This is the part of the message that I was praying about, that we sang about. What is God pressing in on you right now? He's peeling back your chest cavity. He's pressing his finger. And he's shining his light on some areas where you're compromising. You're thinking you're the exception. You're thinking, well, it won't be me. You're giving yourself a pass. That will be the area that will form the noose for your neck if you don't deal with it. You say, Todd, what does that look like? Well, that's the second thing I observe in this chapter. When we don't deal with small things, they always bring large destruction. I think it's interesting that what Solomon looked at as a small thing, one wife in chapter 3, verse 1, and then what led to a thousand of them later, you wouldn't think in your mind like in the beginning, that like, well, that's not a big deal. But man, the, the consequence of that was massive. It was the tearing away of the kingdom from Solomon and, by the way, the division of the kingdom from that point forward. So here's the second point. That the, the, the penalty for his erosion, the penalty for his compromise, was large destruction so large that every single person in every tribe felt the weight of it. The kingdom eventually under his son then was divided. Ten tribes went north. Uh, they eventually were kind of dispersed and scattered. The two tribes in the south were eventually captured as well. They were taken into exile into Babylon. To return though, all of this occurred because Solomon did not deal with compromises early on and then the destruction that brought was the very large. And this is something I think we have to wrestle with, church. Listen very carefully. This is how compromise works. The first deed is always seemingly small compared to the final damage. Are you catching that? The final damage is always greater and worse than the first deed. I think this goes again to this exception thinking. Like, Well, this one thing won't really matter. It won't be that big of a deal. It won't. It won't bother anybody that much. And we have these thoughts that we're going to kind of minimize and, and isolate. And the truth is, often those very first deeds left undealt with produce disastrous consequences. This is how compromise works. This is how erosion works. In fact, let me show you a picture that I think might speak more than me explaining this more. Here's a picture of a house on the verge of falling into the ocean. Now, if I were to say to you, what do you think about this picture? You might say, why in the world would the home builder build the house there? I would say to you, he or she didn't at the first. (laughs) Because at the first, it probably looked like it was a beautiful view from perhaps a hill or a mountain or, or a knoll overlooking the ocean, right? There may have been a lot of space to build. And they enjoyed it. But over time, what was happening? Erosion. Inch by inch. Little by little, and suddenly, at least it appears to be, suddenly, the home builders wake up and they're like, man, what happened to our foundation? What happened to our house? And they've got to move and find a new place as erosion has taken its toll. This is a picture of Solomon's life. When he first started, it probably didn't seem like there was any danger. There's no problem. But 10, 20, 30 years of not addressing the small compromises, and what happens? There is no foundation. And the kingdom is destroyed and divided. Solomon's life is ruined. That's why I want to warn you, church, in a loving and honest way, the end result, listen very carefully, the end result of your refusal to deal with your small compromises is not small. It's large, destructive, disastrous. Maybe you're compromising in areas of training your children, discipline, loving your spouse, spending family time, spending time with God, your prayer and your Bible reading. Maybe it's in your financial investments in God's kingdom. Maybe you're hoarding and you're selfish with your own things for only your own benefit and your interest. Maybe it's in regards to biblical community and you're just avoiding people. You could name a number of ways or areas in which we are compromising. Well, that won't affect me. I'm not... That won't, uh, I'm the exception. But in time, what you think are little things now, and I'll just be this bold with you, a dollar here, a dollar there. A relationship here, relationship there. A week here, a week there. What you think are little now, 10, 15, 20, 25 years of that habit, and you'll wake up and you'll say, how did I get in the mess I'm in? You sleep in the basement for a week, a month, a year, You eat dinner separately. You can take any habit that we think is not a big deal at the moment, but you let that continue in your marriage, in your church, in your life. If you don't address it over time, that small compromise will choke you and bring incredible consequences, not just you, but those around you. So I encourage you. I encourage you. Deal with the small areas that right now God's pressing in on. The one right now you're thinking, man, I hope it doesn't mention mine. I'm already nervous. <laughs> Listen, I'm rowing this boat with you. Man, for about two or three weeks, God's just been shining lights on like, light. man, I've, I've got some changes to make in some areas. I don't want to ignore these and not address them. They're difficult. They're hard. Yeah, You've you got some honest talks. You've got to figure out what's the next best step. You've got to try to change things that are hard to change. But if, you don't, if, if we don't address those, the end result is far worse than the than the short-term pain right now. So, to church, remember, the penalty for erosion, the consequence is always larger than that first deed, okay? I was reminded of this in a humorous way this week as Jill and I talked about our first home we bought. We bought it in 19... Um, I forget what year we bought it now, but I remember we discovered the problem in 1995, about a year before we moved up here. We were living in... A suburb of Atlanta and I was at the office one day and she calls me and she said honey there's something coming out of the wall I'm like there is and she goes I'm not touching it can you come home I'm like yeah I'll be right there I go home and along the edge of the doorpost, post we had this archway kind of thing leading to the bedrooms and there was this uh, the molding right alongside the molding where the wall meets it was real soft and there were little bugs coming out of there and and I, when I got home, I said, well, let's just see I press it. I pressed it, and a huge chunk just fell, and a swarm of termites just came out. So I, in a moment of wisdom, I said, honey, we have termites. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, we had termites for a long time. We just discovered them. Now, fortunately, we dealt with that. We called some exterminators, and they told us, oh, if you live in the south... There's only one kind of home, those who have termites and those who are soon to have termites. I mean, you don't escape that, so you gotta deal with them. And so we dealt with them. We did the treatment, we, you know, we had to up the money. There was a lot involved in that. I remember, though, my first thought when, when I came home and I pressed on that sheetrock and it was soft and spongy and they flew out, I was like, man, there's something wrong with me. I've got termites on my home. And I didn't wanna call the exterminator, I didn't wanna tell anybody. I wanna kinda of hide from that, like, let's pretend they don't exist. They're like, zzz, they're flying out. I don't know if they make a noise or not, but they're just kind of swarming out, you know. And so pretending that we didn't have them to protect an image was a bad idea. Are you with me? But I did have that thought like, man, what are folks going to think? And means our house is dirty or something's wrong with us. But that didn't stop me from making the call and saying, hey, we got a problem here. Can you come help us? Because if I had not dealt with that, then a year later when we moved to Iowa, that house would have been impossible to sell. That had have been a huge financial loss. I wouldn't have wanted that, but it would have happened if I had not dealt with the initial problem. Are you with me? And so I just want to encourage you. We can laugh at the termite illustration, but the same principle applies. When you realize, hey, there's some termites inside my life. Ugh, I'm not sure I like the way that makes me look. I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. What do folks think? Hey, chunk those thoughts. Get some help. Deal with the termites, the small compromises. Because the the end of not dealing with them is far larger and worse than pretending you don't have them. So Todd, how do we deal with them? That's the last thing I want to bring to your attention. And I just think that this chapter gives us some additional insight into that. I find it in six words, in two verses. Can I show you? Some, some what I might call hidden nuggets here. As he's talking to Jeroboam, he gives Jeroboam the, the same requirement he gave Solomon and David. He said, if you will do what's right, then I'll bless you and your kingdom. But there are three words that I think describe how he's to do what's right. How he's to avoid compromise and erosion and stay true. Look at this word. In verse 33, he exhorts Jeroboam. This is the prophet actually here speaking for God. And he says, if you will walk in my ways, doing what is right, and then the next three words, in my sight. Interesting, isn't it? God wants obedience that's right based on his terms. If you go to verse 38, you find the same thing. Here God says to Jeroboam again, you do what is right in my eyes. Six simple words that I think describe how we protect ourselves from erosion and compromise. We don't trust our own Eyes. Instead, we do what's right in God's eyes. Are you with me, church? What did Solomon write? Perhaps this is why he wrote it. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean unto what? Your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He'll direct your paths. Here God is saying, to Jeroboam specifically, but I think by principle, to those who would follow Him, and by saying invocation, if those before you would have done this, do what's right in my eyes. I gave clear commands to kings; they should not have then thought. Well, here's what I think is right. Here's my view. Well, I'm the exception. They should have said what God says matters. That's final. And there are no exceptions. So I'll do that. And when God's eyes are the eyes that matter, we are protected from erosion and compromise. But when. God's word is just a consulting piece of advice for us when God's perspective is just another perspective when God's commands are just another option for us that's the small compromise I want to encourage you this is where confession, repentance and obedience come into play as God presses in on us and shows us, wow, here's some areas where there's some small compromises being made in my marriage, in my family, in my work, in my spiritual life, in my personal time, in my finances, it could be anything. Will I submit to God's perspective? That's the protection for erosion. God's perspective. And say, Lord, I repent. Of a wrong perspective, I adopt your perspective, and i'll obey that. Will we do that, or will we say no i don 't think that that 's an option i 'm just going to stick with my own we 're fair game for every bit of compromise 's consequences if we reject god 's perspective. But if we humble ourselves underneath god 's perspective, then we do safeguard ourselves from the very things Solomon experienced in fact. This is what's meant, I think, by the word holy in verse 4 and verse 6. Will you look at this word as well? You know, Solomon here is um, said by the Lord to have not followed the Lord wholly. His heart was not wholly true. Do you see that in verse 4? Verse 6, he did not wholly follow the Lord. So you get the impression perhaps that Solomon had to be perfect. Like, man... He messed up once, so I guess God was done. That's not the point of the text at all. That's not even the point of this word. Here's what the word says to us. Here's the nuance and the meaning of the word. The word holy simply means that there is this direction towards God that includes repentance, confession, and obedience, even in times when we do wrong. It's not implying a perfection. Does that make sense? So when someone's wholly true to God, what they're saying is my direction is set towards God, even in the middle of sin and error and mistakes. When those happen, we repent, we confess, and we say, God, your perspective is what matters. I'll obey. Then when we sin, we repent and confess and obey. And we make that a lifestyle habit of confession, repentance, and obedience. When you see someone involved in those three habits, you find someone who's wholly pursuing God. In fact, direction is evidenced. Whole direction for God is evidenced by confession, repentance, and obedience. But when there isn't that, when there is, as verse 11 says, a practice of just going after your own idols and consistently making small compromises year after year and rejecting God's perspective, you're not wholly following God. You're wholly following yourself. You see, the, the, the protection that we need is found in those three words, that when God presses in on us and searches our hearts and judges us appropriately and lovingly, that we respond with repentance, confession, and obedience. So even though, and can we just all wrote this book together, even though we sin a thousand times, who hasn't felt the weight of that? My hand's up. Man, I, sometimes I look at my record, I'm like, God, This thing dogs me year after year. Have you ever felt that way? Like, God, man, your grace must be amazing because this sin just keeps tracking me. It's not the thousand times you fail, it's the one time you fail to repent of it. That's why grace is so beautiful, isn't it, church? That's why his mercy is so wonderful. And that's where our protection is. And God will keep erosion and compromise away from you as you embrace a life of whole direction towards Him, which includes, even in the middle of our sin, repentance, confession, and obedience. Oh, as Solomon would have seen what God was doing in his life in judgment through those three enemies, and instead of trying to murder Jeroboam, would have bent his knee to God's authority and said, God, your perspective is right. Oh, I don't know what God would have done, but I wonder, would God not have not perhaps have relented of his judgment and shown mercy to Solomon? I can assure you of this. I may not know what he would have done to Solomon, but if this morning, you'll deal with your small areas through repentance and confession. God will have mercy upon you. How do you know that, Todd? Because... There's a place called Calvary where Jesus showed ultimate grace and mercy for all of our sin. Amen. I know that the word is pressed on us hard this morning, but can we at least acknowledge that beautiful place where all of our sin has been dealt with, where your small compromises can actually end today, where erosion will find its grave, and that's the cross, where Jesus will protect you. After all, we said in our earlier message, wisdom from God is actually personified in Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that. So if you want to be protected from erosion, if you want to battle your compromise, it's not in some secret three tips or tricks from some you know, self-help guru. It's in, it's in the cross. It's in Christ. So let's not run to other people. Let's run to the cross and there find the grace and mercy in abundance for all the things that God reveals in us when he secretly judges us. Those are not unloving moments. That's when God loves us enough to say, I won't leave you like you are. As he points those out, could we this morning say, Lord, I need your protection. And so I adopt your perspective and I come up under your authority. And though I feel like those termites inside of me are an ugly sight and may make people wonder, like, what's wrong with you? None of that matters because I don't want the large consequence at the end. I want to deal with the immediate pain. So, God, would you, by your grace and your mercy in the beautiful face of Christ, cleanse me and forgive me of these compromises and restore me. Forgive me. God will do that. In fact, I can assure you of that because of this simple verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we, what church? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to what? Forgive our sins. You know what the word confess means? It means to say the same thing as. It's two Greek words. Homo, which means same, and legeo, which means to speak. So most literally, this verse would say this. If we speak the same thing as God does about our sins, that's having God's perspective. That's coming up under God's authority and saying, I'm not an exception I want to live with acceptance thinking in mind. And whatever God says, I'm in. And I'm under. So God, I confess my sin. I adopt your perspective. God promises to forgive. You see, that's, that's the beautiful answer to the ugly picture of compromise. Well, we've seen it in Solomon We've seen it in Adam. We've seen it in David. We've seen it in Samson by just reference. Maybe you're wondering, Todd, does it only happen to folks in the Bible times no know it happens to people today as well? We make small compromises. We give in small areas. We think we're the exception and then it looms large at the end and we wonder, is there a way out? Here's a story of a man who felt just like that and by God's grace was restored. Watch this simple video as we close.
1: I told myself that it wasn't all that bad. Boy, was I wrong. there I am, everybody's best friend, beautiful wife, three kids. From the outside, it looked good, except for the secret part that nobody knew about. One that carried, in my mind, no risk. Pornography hooked me deep. I knew I would be back. Whatever risk I would have to take, whatever price I would have to pay, I would be back. Porn took me places I never thought I would go, it groomed me trained me, set me up. So I'm just driving along, and I see this girl. I pull over to offer her a ride, and she propositioned me. And suddenly, I'm picking up my first prostitute on my way to a Christmas Eve service. I'd been hiding my porn use for a long time and thought I could hide it forever. And then one night... My wife caught me. I vowed again, I promised once again to stop and I explained and I begged and she forgave me. But when a few weeks later she found that condom on the floor in the bathroom that I couldn't quite explain, she finally uh, said the words that she needed to say and the words that saved my life. She said, I'm done. I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. That was it for me. That was my wake-up call from fantasy and infidelity. It hurt to hear my wife say she didn't like me anymore. It was as though there was a part of me that died. I'd reached the point where I actually believed that I had become an unlovable person. It was that moment that I finally became willing to do something I'd never been willing to do before. Come clean. And not just with her, but with somebody else. And with God. I had to surrender to a Christian recovery program. They made me understand that I could only experience healing to the depth that I'm willing to confess and repent. I dreaded it at the beginning, but I confessed everything. I had to leave my isolated world behind. I wanted a private solution to my private problem. And he loved me too much to give it to me. The intimacy I was always looking for, I I couldn't find until I was willing to bring my real self into the relationship with God. My wife and I are closer than we've ever been. She didn't tell me until just a few years ago that uh, every night after I fell asleep, she would put her hand on my chest and pray for me that God would make me into the man That I was supposed to be. I know God heard those prayers. If you will just bring your real self. And walk openly with other people. You can experience true intimacy. With God and others.
0: It doesn't have to end like Solomon. Does it? But it means coming clean with the corners of compromise. It means being honest with yourself as God is pressing in this morning. It means not being afraid to say, yeah, man, the termite swarmed out the other day. (laughs) It means laying yourself before God in confession, repentance, and then obedience so that your heart is wholly His. Not perfect, but aligned and directed. That's how we stop erosion. This morning, I want to encourage you, embolden you, and exhort you as one of your pastors, don't let compromise exist and gradually erode away the spiritual fervency of your life. Come clean with even the smallest areas that perhaps are actually killing you. and Let God forgive you and restore you. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.